What's up, guys? Welcome to another edition of the Clinical Mastermind Podcast. I am your host, Dan Pringle, and today I sit down with Joseph DeFonzo to discuss a runner with complex lower back pain. What's up, guys? Welcome to another edition of the Clinical Mastermind Podcast. I am your host, Dan Pringle, and today I have a unique episode for you. It's actually a previously recorded podcast from almost two years ago, and it features myself and my physio colleague, Joseph DeFonzo, and we're talking about a case study. This is a patient of mine who uh, came in. It was an initial appointment. It was really recorded only a couple of days after that appointment, and uh, this patient was a runner, long history of marathon running, over 100 marathons completed and uh, he came in with lower back pain. And what was unique about him were a couple of things. One, that long history of running really added a, a wear and tear on his body, and it was reflected in a ton of previous lower body injuries that he'd suffered over a period of time, and uh, kind of all culminated with this current presentation that he had. The other piece that was really unique was that he was someone who came in with this big stack of all these imaging reports from MRIs to x-rays to ultrasounds and it makes it really unique because you have to find a way to navigate through that stuff and at the same time educate him on what is actually going on so you have to find this balance between actually telling him this stuff is not relevant or is only relevant in a certain way but you need to make sure you validate his concern because obviously he's gone through a lot of imaging and testing and, and a completely new approach uh, can be a little challenging for him to take in, in in one session with a new expert that he'd seen. Joseph does a really good job of taking us through the different questions, the relevant concepts, things that I might have missed as we go along and really probing deeply into what I do, what I did, and how the patient responded. And I think you'll get a lot out of that whole conversation. And I'm sure a couple of your patients will uh, come in front of mind as you start to think a little bit more about these types of, of case studies that we go through. So I hope you get a lot out of it. It's a great opportunity to see a little bit more insight into the way that I treat and approach patient. Obviously, one of the big advantages, I have longer time in terms of assessment time. But uh, you'll surely be able to pull some really relevant uh, concepts that will help you in your cases going forward. If you have any questions, make sure you reach out to me. You can reach me at dan at clinicalmastermind.com. You can reach me on Instagram at dpringle.physio, Twitter dpringle underscore physio, or youtube.com slash dpringle, no E, that's D-P-R-I-N-G-L. And lastly, I want you guys to uh, visit clinicalmastermind.com and sign up for my email newsletter. I've got a lot of exciting things happening in the new year, uh, a lot more content that's going to be delivered, especially by email form. So I'm hoping that you guys uh, are going to be able to take advantage of that. So you can visit clinicalmastermind.com and scroll to the bottom of the page and subscribe. And uh, other than that, you've got a number of great ways to uh, engage with me online, and I look forward to hearing from you. Without further ado, please enjoy the podcast. Let's get into it, Dan. Let's talk about this patient you had him yesterday. The interesting, what was the interesting thing about this guy? Oh man, I mean, there's, there's so many different different things uh, uh, that were that were really kind of unique case that brings together someone who's uh, kind of aging, but has been very active for a long time. You know, defined by their athleticism and uh, and at the same time looking to continue to be active now, but thinking about how to protect themselves in the future. So this is a really common patient that we treat, right? Someone in the Kind of middle ages, 
um, who is active, probably more active than they, they you would typically expect for their right. age group, but is also really trying to uh, think about the long-term health, and sometimes they're at odds, right? And, and before you get into the nitty-gritty, what, what was, tell the listener what was unique about this particular assessment. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, there, there's obviously so many different things, but for, for me in the new year here, I started doing two-hour initial assessments. So that means that every time a patient comes in for the first visit, they have two hours of my time. So it gives you such an amazing mm-hmm. amount of flexibility and opportunity to listen to the patient, understand it. I mean, I hear so many uh, stories about, oh, the busy therapist didn't have time to you know, ask uh, such and such a problem. Or, you know, this is a way for busy therapists to get down to the problem quicker. It's like, you, it's impossible. You can have a couple little ways that maybe gain, help you gain more information quickly, but I, I, you really need time to understand the problem, especially in these kind of complex cases where there's multiple layers of adaptations and dysfunction and complaints. And, and many of our patients come in and they stay with us for a long time because they say, you actually like took the time to understand our problem. I mean, we do our one-hour kind of standard treatment time and in that time we can do so much and patients say once again you know it's, it's amazing that you spend so much time to understand the problem i really feel comfortable here versus whomever else i've seen i mean i'm sure you find the same thing right? yeah plus i think the nice thing about it is is that first session uh you have an abundance of time to treat as well right which is nice because in the one hours i find patients will we usually do a little bit of treatment towards the end yeah. um some more so than others, depending on the complexity of the problem and how long it takes us to figure out what's going on. But if you can have another second hour dedicated to treatment of the problem, where not only you understand the problem better, but the patient gets that treatment and leaves like this guy did, it sounds like incredibly satisfied, feeling better, encouraged about the prospects of recovery. Um, I think that's, that's a huge value add for them, as opposed to just leaving as they do now, where they're, they're confident we know what we're doing. But maybe they haven't seen the results of the treatment yet just because we haven't had time to do anything. Right? Yeah, I think they kind of feel, you know, not quite that's all talk necessarily. Right. They like that you're listening to them and they're, they've invested energy and they yeah. can tell that you've done the same. But when you can spend the time to make sure you get yeah. good quality treatment in and get results in that first session, mm-hmm. then, uh, then you're going to be able to mm-hmm. get incredible buy-in. And more importantly, you're going to be able to lay the groundwork for yeah. how they're going to do going forward. And you've already start, continued the assessment because... You'll get value in understanding how they respond to that yeah. first treatment. If you don't get much treatment in the first day, your second time around, you're still going at it saying, I wonder how they'll feel next week, even if you right. are making changes. You, you can see right. how many of those changes stay, how many don't stay, and therefore gain more information on how long it'll take and where to go next. It just kickstarts the process and gets them, gets them on the road to recovery much quicker. Yeah. And, and I think that's huge. So, so let's get into this. Let's talk about the gentleman that you actually looked at, what yeah. was going on with him, and, and some of the major factors that might have led to this. And uh... yeah, yeah, absolutely. So he uh, he sent me an email uh, a few days ago. Um, he's a 59 year old, and uh, he's been a long time runner, marathon runner for many years. And over the last several years, he's had uh, more issues with his legs and his thighs and so forth that have really limited his ability to run. And then kind of everything's kind of crumbled down as a result. So he's told me that he's had a long history of knee issues. He had some imaging, and he's seen sports doctors and other therapists, and never really gotten a good answer as to what's going on. No one's really connected the dots for him. And uh, he was hoping that I might be able to explain in more detail uh, what was going on and then really help him with his goals. So he's 
run over a hundred marathons in his life. Wow. And he'd like to do three more. And he's okay kind of doing like a run slash walk, but he doesn't need to, you know, kill it in under three hours or something ridiculous. He just wants to do it for his own mind, for his own sanity, for, you know, just the last kind of last moment of glory, so to speak, you know, and, uh, and, and that's what he'd like to try to accomplish. I mean, he, he doesn't want to take 12 hours to finish a marathon, but he's okay knowing that he won't be able to do what he did you know, several decades ago when he was starting up his marathon. Right. Okay. Got it. And how, how did he find it? Uh, you know what? I think he just found us on the internet, which okay. is, which is, uh, you know, he, 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 I guess, was looking up places in the area related to sports medicine and saw the website and saw kind of my extensive experience working with everything from runners to, um, to, to kind of, you know, other sports injuries, to more chronic stuff, some of the teaching stuff that I've done, and uh, I guess he, he found us that way, but he, he emailed me directly rather than emailing the clinic, so he, he must have specifically, he, he came in looking for uh, a specific thing. He wasn't just looking for an expert. Yeah, he was yeah. looking for an expert who could yeah. help him. Yeah, okay. Well, it sounds like he didn't need that. He's got a lot going on there. Yeah, especially because he's seen others before. Yeah. So what was, uh, what was his, what's his main complaint um, at this point, and then um, maybe you can kind of delve into some of the past injury history and maybe how that's connected to what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, it's 100% connected and with runners, it's almost a no-brainer, right? Mm-hmm. So his main complaint, um, he started, he said, about around December of 2016. So just over a year ago, uh, he had like kind of lateral thigh pain that developed on his left side. And that was more related to, he, he claimed he was in Florida, he was running on the beach a lot on an angle. and. Preferentially putting stress on his left leg somehow, and he started noticing pain not during the run but afterwards, and it just kind of built and was getting worse and worse to the point where it was hard to walk at times and was certainly wasn't able to run uh, at first. Took some time off, rested, did some exercises, maybe got a little bit of treatment. It kind of slowly um, improved over, I think, what he said about three months with just kind of that that little rest. And, and some focus exercise and stretches and stuff like that, things he mostly did in his own. And uh, But by the time that was you know, improved, he was noticing a lot more just general thigh discomfort if you were to try to run. So he probably hadn't done too much more than about a 10K run in the last little while, and that was a, kind of a standard thing that he would he would do, mm-hmm. his baseline. But now he's, he's barely been able to do that. Uh, which is, you know, for him something something really important to be able to get out there and sure. run, and it's you know, yeah. a, a, an emotional yeah. release, a stress release, and he hasn't yeah. been able to do that. And if he does do it, he has a fair amount of thigh discomfort during and afterwards. Okay, and that was a big thing. Okay, um, and has he had treatment for it since yeah. it started in December? So we've got a sports doc who is yes. quite hands on, so we'll even do a little bit of of, of treatment. Oh, really? And uh, yeah, so he's had this knee this knee issue on um, off and on for the lot for for a number of years, like quite a number of years, as I'll get to in a second. Um, and so the sports doc has really been focusing on patellar mobility and focusing that being the issue. And you need to work on that, and you need to self massage it and try to stretch your patella and all this kind of stuff. Um, so that's kind of been his focus. He's seen some Cairo and some physio in the past, and, and he's worked with the trainer. And, um, Cairo has been focusing on his on his tibialis posterior tendinopathy or tendinitis or whatever. And he's been using, he was using shockwave on it, which was painful and not really creating much of a result. Okay. Um, the uh, the trainer was really working, and and, and the the physio were really working on glute strengthening and trying to get get him to engage his glutes, side line, right. you know, abduction, that kind of stuff. Really working on that. Um, but 
none of those were really doing too much for his overall issues. Mm-hmm. Um, they were trying to get him to do lunges and squats and stuff like that. Squats weren't too bad. Lunges really activated his knees and really caused a lot of discomfort that he would do several of those and it would last for a long time. So it sounds like collectively, um, at the very least, the approach that he was getting in terms of these, these collection of people treating him, it wasn't just a local approach. There was some element of understanding that there's a functional component to this in yeah. terms of working on the tip pose, you know, the glute strength, um, the patellar mobility. It wasn't all just local, but I think kind of this is something we've talked about before is that there's a, there's a general understanding in our profession and in rehab that most of these problems are not structural. Um, but if it's not structural, kind of what is it? And I think that's where the disconnect lies here. And then people kind of take stabs at working on this, working at that, without really understanding kind of the big picture of what's going on. That, that to me, sounds like what is going on here. Yeah, I mean, I, I, they were doing, a, I guess, a decent job of yeah. not going right to the area right. and saying, okay, well, it's your glutes. And he's like, I don't understand why my glutes, I guess they have a relationship with my knee, but I don't understand why. Yes. No one had really explained that thoroughly to the point where we understood. And he's a smart guy, but not necessarily um, educated in terms of, you know, functional, you know, anatomy or anything else yeah. like that. Um, but yeah, he, he felt like every single professional he went to would focus on one thing. They're like, oh, it's your glutes. Oh, it's your patella. Right. Oh, it's your tempo. Like they would go to the, whatever one issue yeah. they were, you know, preferentially picking. Right. And then they would stick to that. And, uh, so he was saying they, they were all focusing on one thing, but I never knew how they were connected and I never knew how that was going to fix right. the problem. And I didn't see any changes. Right. So I didn't, I don't understand. Right. So he was kind of at a loss because of that. And he had these goals of trying to complete three more marathons. And he uh, didn't really see anything in the horizon that was going to be changing. And he wanted to know what to do. Right. Um, so I want to go back because he's had a number of other things. He had, um, he's had a history of he had a significant uh, right uh, shoulder separation a number of years ago. Really visible anatomical deformation there, but he never had surgery or anything else like that. And he's got great mobility of that shoulder. So they left it again. Good idea. Definitely something that highlights the, the fact that the structure, the, the visible anatomy doesn't affect the function all that much. He's had a history of tennis elbows. He had a, a left uh, patellar infection of some sort or infrapatellar bursa infection. Mm-hmm. Um, not sure how it happened. I think he had a cut or something like that. And uh, causing some issues. Mm-hmm. But uh, the main thing is that he's had this long history of knee pain. Knee, and then he's had knee, tip, post, uh, tip, and, uh, more one side than the other. Okay. Yeah, uh, mostly on his left side, which is his more affected side, okay. even though he has always felt like that side is stronger. Right? So, but he comes in with this, which I didn't show you earlier, but this is his stack of <laughs> MRIs and images. So I'm going to, you know, one, two, three, four, That's five. That's a short story. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Eleven. There's like about 15 pages here of MRI reports dating back from the last, I don't know, probably like at least five years, if not more. Mm-hmm. Um, this one? Yeah, in the last five years, and they range from x-rays to MRIs. And this is, this is what is confusing because Again, progressive in the sense that these people have not really blamed the structures and said, oh, you know, you, all these things in the image are causing your problems. Very good, yeah. But then they haven't said what is the problem exactly. in a very effective manner. So you can go through this and uh, on that 
Oh, this is his right knee. Okay, so he's had some issues on both knees, obviously. He's got full thickness chondral loss involving medial facet, patella, and apex, and chondral thinning involving lateral facet with underlying subchondral cyst changes and subchondral edema. Marginal osteophytes from the patella. Full thick, thickness chondral loss of the femoral trochlea with subchondral cyst change. It goes on and on and on. Patellofemoral arthritis. Uh, he has metatarsal adductus, of course, right? He's got the, the um, you know, like a, a hallux valgus. He's got, um, you know, what is this? Mild degenerative changes of the first uh, metatarsal cuneiform. Um, he's got all sorts of like he goes on and sounds on. like this guy's run a hundred marathons. Jeez, <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. You've been saving that one, but that was good. You're waiting back pocket, right? baby. <laughs> um, yeah, so all sorts of chondral cartilage type changes around the kneecap area. Mm -hmm. There's another one in here somewhere. Let me see if I can find it. Where's his ankle one? Where it talks about he's got like tibialis anterior tendinopathy, tibialis posterior tendinopathy. Um, you know, all sorts of little areas of inflammation. There's a Baker cyst somewhere in there. Like, it goes on and on and on. So how, how do you... Let me stop you there, because people are probably wondering, especially I will be early in my career. How do you weed through that? How do you know what's important, what's not important? And how do you prevent yourself from becoming overwhelmed from all this stuff and telling the guy, I I can help you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty simple, right? In this case, I spent about as much time reading that to you as I spent reading all those, those sheets. I scan through it looking for anything major that says there is something here that like is totally blocking your range of motion or is so abnormal that requires surgical intervention. Uh, and if I don't see anything like that, then I'm going to move on. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to recognize that there's a lot of wear and tear. <laughs> like you said, mm -hmm. he's run a lot of marathons. Mm -hmm. His knees are not in great shape, nor will most of that stuff ever change. Mm -hmm. But that there are people out there who are really active, who this is not limiting, and is not necessarily symptomatic if they load properly. And so, as a, as a, like a younger practitioner, for instance, you know, uh, you know, talking to you when you first graduated, what I would say is, take a look at that stuff, but just recognize that it's there underlying. Don't blame it for the symptoms, mm -hmm. because there are people out there who have many of those things in different combinations and don't have symptoms. So what you need to try to understand is how does this person move? Where are the areas that you can restore the most adaptability? And how do you target them? Okay. And, and, and think more in terms of how can I get them moving better and how can I help them absorb forces so they don't go through the knees, so they don't go through the, 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 the tip post to a level that it can't handle and prevent future wear and tear rather than worried about the one that already exists that is very much a normal one. Okay, fantastic. Um, I, I got a question for you about the symptom as well. Yeah. So he's got this lateral thigh issue, kind of bilateral. Uh, yeah, anterior lateral. Yeah. Anterior lateral. So how do you, uh, sticking in line with this vein of structure versus function, how do you prevent yourself from kind of getting locked into a particular structure, whether it be a nerve, a muscle, um, some type of connected tissue, ligament, whatever? Um, how do you prevent yourself from kind of ascribing blame to that thing as soon as you hear where the pain is and stepping back and thinking big picture and more functional? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, the answer is pretty simple, and I, I think it's probably naturally ingrained in me. I hope it is in, in most practitioners. It's, the question shouldn't be what. The question should be why. Um, the job of the initial assessment is exactly that. You're supposed to assess. You're supposed to try to understand not just 
wh where the problems exist, but why they developed. And that's a hard thing to do because it comes with experience. You need to know. You need to know generally what imaging things you need to be. You know, if you see a bucket handle meniscus tear and they can't extend their knee, okay, you probably can't do anything. Do too much about that. But at the same time, you want to try to say, you know, why did these things develop? Why is there so much stress on his quads when he runs? What is he doing differently? Where is the force not being absorbed? Where are the adaptations elsewhere? Where is weakness? Where is lack of range of motion? Where is there their excessive stress, where is their irritation of the nerves, where is their poor communication between the periphery and the central nervous system. So you have to say why. Why did this stuff develop, not just say what is it and how do I treat it. And uh, I was having this conversation with, uh, with another colleague of mine earlier this morning where he wanted to see how Alejandro treats. You know, Alejandro, of course, our, our, our big mentor, our McMaster Contemporary Acupuncture Program. And he said, I want to see how he treats. And I, and I said, well, you don't want to see how he treats. You want to see how he thinks. You want to understand why he treats what he treats. You want to understand the theory because you can apply it in any context. You're not stuck to just the one uh, aspect of his, of, his, of his treatment and see what he does. Because you can look at it and not understand it and not know why. And you can repeat it if you get the exact same parameters. But if you get different parameters, you don't know what to do. So, you, you know, especially early in your career, you should be trying to understand the why in as much depth as possible. And you should be challenging your why by testing your hypothesis and proving yourself constantly that you understand a problem. Even if the patient is kind of unaware of the fact that you're challenging yourself, you need to make a habit of making sure and testing your hypotheses regularly so you can further develop your understanding of why problems exist and then therefore what you can do. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So let's get back on track here. We got this 59-year-old runner, lots of wear and tear on the body, lots of running, over 100 marathons, past injury history's got significant bilateral knee problems. He's had some tip post issues. He's had some bursal issues in and around the knee. Uh, he's had the shoulder issue. Um, back stiffness on and off. Back stiffness nothing, on and off. Nothing terrible. But he's had a couple, he's a, you know, it's hard to gauge from him, but he said, eh, right, back would lock off on occasion, but. But he's, he's, he's also been able to adapt to these things. Yeah, right, he's pretty active. Yeah, he's still quite active. The fact he's that he's a, run these marathons. He's been a competitive yeah. paddler. He, he's uh, still been able right. to run, just mm -hmm. not, he can't imagine himself running, uh, running a marathon mm -hmm. and maybe be able to run 5K mm -hmm. with some discomfort and certainly less frequent than he would like to or has done in the recent past. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So before we go get into kind of the assessment, the objective assessment, was there any metabolic issues? We've talked about the pyramid of function before, how the metabolic can affect the function of the neurological and the biomechanical systems. Any metabolic stuff with this guy? You know what? There, uh, there weren't a lot of major signs of metabolic stuff. Um, you know, as we'll get into the assessment, you know, tissue quality was pretty good. No kind of major flags on, on any of the metabolic stuff. And what kind of what kind of questions are you asking to ascertain whether or not there might be a metabolic? Component? You know, I'm asking about kind of digestive related stuff. I'm asking a little bit about supplementation if he's taken, if he's needed anything. Right. We're talking about. Um, general, you know, kind of more general health kind of questions, and I'm not just checking off that he's healthy. I'm trying to analyze whether there there are other little underlying things. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, he's been fantastically healthy. I mean, speak to those marathons and everything else like that. He's mm -hmm. in great shape. His his body type uh, wasn't one that you know you know some runners who've run that mm -hmm. much you're worried that metabolically they've been insufficient. Yeah. Um, but he didn't really have any signs from visibly or from any of the discussions that yeah. I, I had yeah. around that. So I'm looking at I'm looking at him. I'm understanding his relationship with his his running. Yeah. Um, so nothing metabolic, but right. on the behavioral side, you know, uh, he was someone who's uh, had some issues in the past. 
uh, with you know stress and, and anxiety, I believe. And uh, and running, as it is for many runners, is a way to kind of escape that and, and, and de-stress, and it's fantastic in that way. Mm-hmm. And so, in my uh, in, in 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 my experience, that is very common of runners, and you take that away from them, and it, it can really have a more large effect on their their quality of life, their relationships, their stress levels, their sleep habits, all those things. If they can't run, they can't get that stress relief. They can't get those endorphins. As a result, they kind of struggle in other aspects of their life. Now, I can't say that that's the case for him per se, uh, but it was very clear that both the inability to run and this drastic change from being as active as he'd love to be, you know, anything he wanted to do, he could do, to suddenly in a short period of time not being able to do even a fraction of what he used to be able to do. Mm -hmm. Combined with the fact that he doesn't know why and no one's given a good answer and no one's been able to fix him or give him a clear connection of the dots in terms of the problem, that that multiplies it as well. So, you know, we see this a lot. You know, if, if you are just saying, well, the problem isn't this or the problem isn't that, but then you focus on one thing and you don't actually explain what is the problem and how he's gotten there, you're going to ultimately end up adding more anxiety to people than taking it away. Mm-hmm. And if he's trying to move and he's trying to be active and he can't, then you have to give them more guidance. You have to empower them, but to empower them, you need to show them they can move mm-hmm. carefully and that they're going to make progress. And unfortunately, the other people he'd seen hadn't been able to. Okay, great. So, so picture starting to form here in terms of the pyramid of function, a snapshot of this guy. Mm-hmm. Metabolically, he sounds like he's relatively intact. I mean, you have to be to, to be able to run a hundred marathons. Someone who has significant metabolic issues would never even get to this point. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're not too concerned about that. The next rung up. Uh, is the neurological function, which we know there's going to be problems with this guy. We're going to get a better assessment of that in the objective part of the assessment. Biomechanically, we can, you know, he is a runner, so we know that there's going to be probably some issues there just from long-term changes and the adaptations that have been happening, and then behavioral as well. So going in, we know that we're going to focus probably on the top three rungs of that neurological, yeah, yeah. Uh, or that pyramid of function, I should say. So let's, let's talk about what you looked at, um, and what you assessed and how it kind of connected the dots from what you were thinking from the subjective part of the assessment. Well, I'm actually going to take a step backwards for a second. The reason I want to do that is because um, I want to highlight the fact that by the time I started to get him moving, we were, I want to say, at least <clears throat> at least 35 minutes into the session. So I spent the first half an hour... Just, you know, probably the first 10 minutes just listening to him. He's one of those guys who came in and just started talking. You know, he's got the story. He's got a story. He's got a story. He's got got burning issues and he wants to know. So he sits there and he's talking for 10 minutes. And then I start to pick it apart and ask him a bit bit more questions, get a bit more of the objective, or sorry, the subjective history out and start to really kind of figure out what's, you know, what's kind of causing this. But I spent a lot of time initially just explaining to him some basic principles in neurofunction that are going to lead to his ability to, um, to 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 understand the problem, and then therefore understand what I'm going to tell him and assess him. So when I find weakness, or I find tightness, or I find um, you know uh, an inability to move in a certain way, you know what does that mean? How can he contextualize it? Because he wants answers more than anything. If I didn't treat him today, uh, you know, yesterday, he still would have come away with that really deep understanding. But I needed to come away with that understanding, and that's what the, the next step of the assessment and the treatment was going to be. But he was someone that needed that extra time, and if it was someone right away I knew, if I didn't have two hours, 
I would not be even able to accomplish the explanation piece because I spent most of that two hours explaining problems to him. I was assessing and treating and whatever, but the whole time explaining to him and contextualizing my findings so that he understood when I said, oh, look, you're weak here. Well, that doesn't mean that you're broken and you'll never be the same. It's mm -hmm. just, this is a finding. We're going to make changes towards this. I'm going to help you make changes towards this. This is how it's been limiting you, and this is how, if we address it, it will be able to support you further. Mm -hmm. Especially with a patient like him. he Not all patients are, are as inquisitive and searching yeah. for answers. Some of them just want to know that you know. They don't need to know. Just fix me, right? Yeah, yeah. But this guy... You know, he's a serious runner. He considers himself an athlete. He wants to know what's going on with his body. So him more than any other patient, yeah, you need to do that in that first that first assessment and ongoing throughout as as things change for sure. So I'm talking about the uh, I'm talking about the nervous system. I'm talking about adaptations. I'm talking about the pyramid of function. Some of these things that we've discussed already in the podcast, and we can we can talk about in in, in more detail um, later on if the discussion comes to that, but. Uh, ultimately, it was a lot of explaining before I even touched him. We were, we were probably, yeah, 35 minutes in before I even started to get him moving a little bit. And uh, by that point, you could already tell in his eyes that he was he felt very comfortable that he was in the right place. Beauty. So, uh, so on to the objective. And the first thing I got him to do was walk. And when he walked, let me see if I can pull up the video for you. Maybe you can kind of share some, share some thoughts here. Um, but essentially what he was, you know, what he really showed was a, a huge amount of rigidity in his, in his torso compared to relatively good movement in his lower body. Take a look at what you see there. Yeah. Through his TL junction, he's not moving at all. Even up into his scapula, eh? He's got very little rotation to kind of counter force. Look at his arms. Look, yeah. at, the, look at how his arms yeah. swing, right? Yeah. So he's in quite a bit of abduction in those shoulders mm -hmm. and it seems like he's trying to generate motion through mm -hmm. his his shoulders and his back because he can't do anything from his, his lumbar yeah. thoracic. There's no rotation. There's no extension. It's just like a block, right? But that movement's all through his glenohumeral joint. There's very little scapular movement, very little thoracic movement, even yeah. down to the lumbar, right? It's all just glenohumeral extension, right? But if you look at his lower body, like it looks pretty good, right? I mean, his hips are moving as much as you'd like, but overall, there's not a major, the, the toes out a little bit on the left, but yeah. there's no major dysfunction that you wouldn't see in the average person. But when you multiply the, the speed and impact of running, then that's going to be a significant impact on his ability to, to function. So I'm looking at the way that he walks and uh, I'm picking up rigidity through the upper back. You know, legs are not bad, but no rotation means poor absorption of force. When you have a higher speed and higher amount of force, the rotational um, factor is uh, the ability to absorb force in that, that plane is totally limited. Um, and so right away, I explained to him, he's got a problem of force absorption. His ability to absorb and disperse reaction forces is really limited. And I explained in detail what that means. Um, is that something, have we talked about that before? I don't think so. No. Okay, good. So this is, a, yeah, this is a really good one. So yeah. I explained basically that, you know, when you're just standing still, you know, one of Newton's laws is that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. In physics, that means that every force is an equal and opposite force. So when you're standing, you have a ground reaction force. The, Force of gravity pulling you down into the floor is equal through your body. The floor pushes into your body in equal and opposite manner. So just standing, you need to resist gravity. 
What that means is that when you are walking, there's you know a small multiplier, you know one to one point five your body weight while you walk, and extra forces just based on your acceleration that your body then needs to absorb. When you start to run, that multiplies several times more. You know, we're talking five times and, and potentially more, depending on the type of running surface and all these different factors. So you're suddenly seeing this huge increase in the force going down into the ground. Well, that also needs to be matched by the forces going up through your body. And you run for hundreds of thousands of steps a year while you're doing all these marathons. And suddenly that's going to have a very significant impact if there's a problem in absorbing those forces. So the skeletal structure needs to absorb a portion of those reaction forces, but most of it comes from the soft tissue. So there's this uh, concept of tensegrity that I've talked a little bit about, the idea of, of tension more than compression distributing the forces around the joints, through the soft tissues, and that plays such a big role in absorbing force through throwing, through running, through standing, through sitting, all these different forces need to be absorbed. And it's mostly not through the skeletal system, even though that's oftentimes what we think. We think of the skeleton like this table, but it's not. It's a much more complex distribution of force. Mm -hmm. And the body will adapt to make sure that ultimately those forces don't go to the head and neck. So it needs to do its best to absorb the forces throughout the body, and it's distributed in some different framework for every person. Um, the exact numbers aren't so important, but say it's 10% in the feet, 20% in the knees, 20% in the hips, whatever it is. And ultimately, if there's a problem in one area, that's going to shift those forces elsewhere. Eventually, the body says, ah, you know what, I can't handle this or else I'm going to be significantly injured. So it slowly adapts to reduce the forces in that area to protect mm -hmm. itself, mm -hmm. sending forces elsewhere. So when it sends those forces elsewhere, now the hip or the knee, or in his case, the thigh, takes extra stress than it should. And eventually over time, it can no longer, no longer handle those stresses and potentially symptoms or wear and tear starts to develop. And that's what happened in his knees. His knees took a bunch of the blunt from dysfunction, likely at his hips, back, and ankles. And then subsequently, it moved further up the chain. So I really explained it in quite a lot of detail yeah. because that was the most fundamental thing with runners. It's all about force generation and force absorption. And, uh, and, and as we'll talk about in a second, his posterior chain, you know, back, glutes, hamstring, calf, there was quite a bit of inhibition suggesting that for a long time, he's had difficulty propelling himself and also absorbing forces. And that's why there's been this force mayhem going to his the patellar cartilage, his femoral cartilage, his tib post, his tib ant, his thoracic and lumbar spine, and everything else in between. Yeah, that's great. I think I think that's that's super important. That that conversation right there, uh, I'm sure for him, probably connects what is going on right now with what has happened in the past from his past injuries to the ways that his movement has changed to why his tib post might not be functioning, his patellar femoral joint might be an issue to his glutes being an issue that to me it's it's that right there yeah. right that's the relationship right there the body just trying to adapt to the absorption dispersion of forces and what you see based on what the video we just watched how he walks is just the end result of that right the nervous system trying to coordinate things to just keep this guy moving to do the things that he needs to do that's it yeah yeah that was huge for me even when i heard it right that that yeah. light bulb went off in uh, yeah. in the course yeah, no, it's a fantastic, uh, fantastic yeah. concept, and it really explains a lot of people's movement problems, especially when they're 
increasing their speed and multiplying their forces. Mm -hmm. um, the other piece that I tied into that that really played a big role was, was an analogy, an analogy, let me say that properly, um, that, uh, that played a big role in explaining to him the concept of adaptation. So we've talked about that before on the podcast. We won't go into too much detail, but obviously we discussed the idea of stresses going from one area to another and how the nervous system mediates changes in movement patterns and soft tissue changes and, and all sorts of different things to adapt to those uh, excessive forces. And so I explained it to him. I said, hey, have you ever played Jenga before? And he said, well, what's Jenga? I was like, I, I didn't know anybody hadn't played Jenga, but then I explained, you know, it's the one with the blocks and the power, and you pull one out and you put it on top. It's oh, okay. All right. So I said, imagine for a second that those blocks are, are not structures, but rather adaptations. So every time you have a little injury or an adaptation, you take a block and you put it up top. And you could do that for quite a while, you know, okay, tip post is acting up a little bit. Okay, I'm going to shift my gait and use my glutes a little bit more. Boom. Okay, you know, I've got a little bit of rigidity in my thorax, so I'm going to use uh, more patellofemoral. Uh, you know, put a bit more stress on the patellofemoral joint. Okay, boom. That's another, another uh, block. And subsequently over time, our body can adapt, and it's quite stable for a considerable period of time. But eventually you have enough adaptations that it gets a little wobbly. And then all it takes is one more stressor, one more ad adaptive force, adaptive demand, and boom, maybe a couple of blocks fall, or maybe the whole, whole thing falls down. In his case, he certainly feels like the whole thing has fallen down. And he was trying to understand why. Why did I suddenly go from being able to do everything within a couple of years to boom, having a lot more difficulty? And I was explaining to him, the, the Jenga analysis, that you hit a point where your body has reached its adaptive capacity and the next stress or an accumulation of small ones over time is enough to send you over the edge and lead to a more significant injury or your body just no longer being able to do what your body, what your mind is asking it to do. And, uh, and that also combined with the, the idea of reaction forces really encapsulated what he was missing in his explanations and therefore had a new comfort level in terms of what we were about to do next. Great. Yeah, I love that analogy. That's, that's huge. I'm definitely going to take that to uh, forwards to explain it to patients. Now, let's, we're talking about him, but we're kind of talking in the abstract here. These are, these are abstract concepts. The difficult thing to do is take these abstract concepts and then apply them to a specific case to be able to recognize a, where those unsuccessful adaptations are in the body, and then what you need to do for this guy in order to restore adaptability in order to help him with his movement problem and pain problem. So let's, let's get more specific here and talk about what you found specifically on assessment yeah. that you knew you needed to fix or restore or change or modulate. And then how are you going to go about doing that? Okay, that's good. Yeah, I mean, you, you know me, I, I like to think very, uh, you know, not metaphysical. Oh, it's I like important, to think, though. I like yeah. to think very big picture. Yeah. yeah. And you need to understand that before you narrow Absolutely. it down. But I, you know, especially in our conversation, yeah. I tend to be more of the, the high-level stuff. But, yeah, I did a lot of specific uh, assessment going forward. So I just got a sense that his, his most of his problem was maybe it's either going to be ankle or uh, thoracic from the way that I watched him move from the story that he was telling me. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of the objective assessment that confirmed that. So I watched him squat and it was actually pretty good. Way better than I thought. You know, probably 
a little bit below 90 degrees in terms of the squat. He was a little bit externally rotated, but right, left foot rotated out a little bit more. Um, but he was able to do a pretty decent squat, which tells me right away hips aren't too bad. Okay. Um, but I was just looking at it grossly. I wanted to see how much his knees would move. I was wondering what, whether or not it would, it would act anything up. It did, really. A little bit of discomfort and tension um, around the patellar region and, and a bit more proximal with that. Um, single leg, his balance was off on that left side, which is, again, the more affected side. Um, and he was able to... Single leg squat or stance? Just stance. Okay. Single leg squat, he had a bit of difficulty uh, on the left side engaging because of tension, excessive tension in the quads and the lateral side. Felt weak, but also quite a bit of tension. I wouldn't say to the level of discomfort, but he didn't, he wasn't super happy to do it. Um, bit easier on the right side. Not great overall, but didn't really act up the knees, which was great. That's what I wanted to see. I wanted to test how bad is this patellofemoral stuff? How much work is it going to be there? Because I know that if he can't load his knees in a bent position, it's going to be difficult for him to load his hips and you know, work on mechanics in a functional way. That's always going to have the potential to act up yeah. at some point. Uh, so I wanted to make sure that he can eventually get to a point where he can be squatting, lunging, doing these functional movements without putting too much stress on his knees. Especially specific to his activities. Right? You're, you're, you're yeah. running, you're loading yourself in single leg stance quite a bit. Every step. Like that, yeah. Thousands of steps, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so so from there, from that alone, I'm thinking, okay, hips are probably pretty decent. Um, you know, we'll, we'll assess, but I'm still expecting some weakness there. Patellofemoral is not terrible and not acutely symptomatic, which is great news. Um, and I have to figure out what the quads, what's going on with the quads. And then the ankle stuff, a little imbalanced, but let's see. So I get them on the table, and yeah, there are a lot of tissue changes, a bit of thickening and stuff through medial and lateral ankles on both sides, uh, more on the left side. Yeah, a little tender, but nothing crazy. Overall, his ankle strength was quite good. Uh, a little bit of weakness on the left um, uh, tip post with a bit of discomfort, but nothing terrible. Hip range of motion was fantastic. In almost every position, flexion, internal, external rotation, extension, interesting, was great. Yeah. Like as much range as you look, right? <clears throat> and strength was fantastic too. Hip strength, hip flexion, abduction, and adduction were all like almost perfect. Flexion was 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 great. It was perfect. I pushed as hard as like uh, no problem. Abduction, adduction, a little bit of weakness, but nothing out of the ordinary. Nothing telling me there's a major inhibition or major dysfunction. Should be worked on, but nothing crazy. So ankle and hip strength were, were good. Ankle and hip strength so were good. Neuromotor motor is pretty intact. Patellar, uh, this is supine in this, in this position. Right. Um, patellar mobility limited. I've seen worse, but definitely limited there. Not symptomatic. A lot of crepitus and some restrictions in movement all across. Mm -hmm. um, knee flexion was a little limited because, more on that left side because of tissue around the patella. You could really feel the tension build there, whereas the quads were... There wasn't too much tension, it was normal, but around the patella it really built up. So kind of a difficulty hinging into the end range flexion. Not a position he needs for running, right. but a sign that he's you've got quite a bit of tension right. and dysfunction in that in that area around the patella. Mm -hmm. So we knew that, nothing new, seemed reasonable that we can work on it. Tissue quality is pretty good. <clears throat> so when I got him uh, prone, he had very bad hip extension. That was the most significant find. Bad, bad hip bad extension. Bad. Uh, Resistance. Strength. Okay. Yes. That hip extension strength, difficulty with hamstring strength as well, and observe that to generate hamstring or uh, glute max engagement, he needed to use a lot of his back. 
So I would, you know, in, in push against hamstrings, and you'd see him go into hip flexion. Like his his hips would come off the table to try to generate more force as he extended through that, and using his opposite hip flexor for for hip extension. So he was using other muscles' compensatory patterns. I know I can't change that right away because that's been ingrained for a long time, and that's when I'll eventually get into red cord, and we'll talk about that in some subsequent podcast. We're so more patterning problem. Yeah, exactly. Innovation. I can give him access, but he's going to use that old stupid pattern unless sure. we really address it. Yeah, right. So we can do that in the future. And that'll help with his force absorption, for sure, when he learns to isolate different groups in a better way. Um, but that was, that was really funny. Again, hip range of motion, extension, rotation in, in prone was fantastic. Not too much in the way of trophic changes, tissue changes in the back, signaling, uh, segmental dysfunction, not too much going not on much there. Of that. Not much going on there. It was overall pretty good. So to me, I'm thinking a couple of things. How about having his um, like passive dorsiflexion? Passive dorsiflexion was was cap fun. tension was fine. It wasn't yeah, it wasn't crazy. It wasn't uh, it wasn't extremely notable. Yeah. No, big, sure. no big toe stuff. Uh, you know what? I didn't actually get to the big toe stuff. I talked a lot about that, but I didn't uh, yeah. I didn't assess on the first day. I knowing that running is a big uh, big factor, it will be important for me to assess yeah. and 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 treat that area if necessary. Yeah. Uh, but I was trying to think more big picture goals right on the first day. So even if I saw something in tip post, I knew that it's not going to impact his ability to walk and run and squat and right. and, and, and do the more functional movements. Uh, it wasn't if it was limiting and doing something weird with his feet and gait, I would have you know spent more time. But I didn't see anything when he watched him move yeah. saying it was a huge priority. It really wouldn't get him back to running, but we're not quite there. Yeah. Okay. Um, so from all of that I concluded that the three major areas that we need to work on um, oh, by the way, I will include that very poor uh, glute development, like very inhibited, weak, just in standing, his glutes were not well developed, with a very rigid and flat back, like basically from upper thoracic all the way down to lumbar with a straight board. So clear signs of poor shock absorption over time. The back basically said, hey, I can't keep my normal curvature because I'm going to take too much stress on the joints and the nerves and the soft tissues. So I'm basically going to say, screw lock this, yeah. lock up and say, we just can't do anything here anymore. We're going to have some serious problems. Mm -hmm. So as a result of all of that, I said... So his hips are probably saving his back. His hip, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, that's that's the thing that's doing the trick for sure. I, I told him that I was like, if the lower body wasn't doing what it's yeah. doing, if the hip back were in serious issues, and the hip strength, except for extension and, and quad strength, is mm -hmm. is probably what's been saving him. But that's now the last refuge. Yeah, if that goes, if that goes, he's done. Out. And that's what's happening. The dragon tower's coming down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's that one pill in the water. Yeah, you gotta pull that one out and hope that you can yank it and the whole <laughs> the whole tower just lands yeah. flat and yeah. nothing shakes, right? Yeah. Uh, like pulling a pulling a tablecloth. <laughs> yeah. Don't load a table, yeah. Exactly. So um, so I realized it was those three areas that we sorry, the three areas were Thoracic and lumbar mobility, just trunk mobility in general, extension, rotation, whatever we can we can do to activate those muscles. Second being patellar mobility because there is some limitation there, we can make some decent improvements. Mm -hmm. And then the third one was hip extension and working on that strength and trying to get glutes better engaged and and, and improve the patterning with regards to that posterior chain. 
Okay, so glute bridges, some thoracic rotation exercises, some quad stretching, send them home. Good to go, right? What, like six weeks and then yeah. maybe we see a small improvement? Yeah. yeah. Great. All right, guys, join us next week. <laughs> what did you do, actually? All right, so what I did, actually, uh, do, do people catch up on the joke or did they think uh, it was over? Or? I don't know. All right. Um, so what I did was a, uh, I did a multi-segment. So we had... had uh, needles into the paraspinals on each side of the spine at the level of th uh, thoracolumbar junction, so between T10 and L2, and then also in the upper lumbar, so kind of like L3, L5, something like that. And uh, the upper, of course, is the segmental vascular level, so impacting the, the uh, sympathetic system, vascular system, um, and, and that plays such a big role in providing better perfusion, uh, better blood flow in the area, and better regulation mm -hmm. of that perfusion. I would say that it's not necessarily an increase in blood flow, it's an increase in, in ability to control mm -hmm. blood flow as needed. So if it needs more, great. If it needs less, great. It does it other way. Better regulation. Mm -hmm. um, the, lumbar, uh, the lumbar plexus stimulation is more related to hip and knee than you know, versus ankle, uh, but it's going to have a broad effect because there's a lot of overlap between in, within those, those lumbar paraspinals, meaning we're innovating and, and affecting a, a broad region of the lower extremity. Mm -hmm. uh, I included some glute stimulation, uh, four needles in each glute, targeting superior inferior gluteal nerves, piriformis, and obviously sciatic nerve is in that area, although we didn't get a contraction there. And then I included some distal stuff, uh, common peroneal nerve, and what did I do? And tibial posterior. Right, so you're, you're, you're using a neurological intervention, the electroacupuncture, to target these seemingly mechanical functional problems, right? The, the function of the skeletal musculature around the knee, around the hip, and then in that low back kind of pelvic girdle area, but also affecting the vascular system as well. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, I, I explained it to him. The nervous system does everything, and so we we're affecting the, the sympathetic vascular. I explained what that was. We we're affecting the motor, which I explained. Mm -hmm. We're affecting the sensory, so signals of pain and so forth. We're affecting that as well. Proprioception we're affecting, which is which was noted in his balance on his left side. So we're addressing all those different movements. And uh, we can do that all with one intervention. I'm telling you, I'm treating all three, four, five different levels all at one time. While that's going on, I'm not leaving the room to treat someone else. I'm explaining in much more detail all the little elements that, that tell, you, tell me where the problem is, what I'm going to do next, and reinforcing his confidence that I know what I'm doing and that we have the right path. And that was a fantastic opportunity, about 20 minutes while those needles were in, to continue that discussion to lead him to a, a better understanding of his problem and have much less anxiety and stress. And he could tell things were going on. He was obviously very comfortable and, uh, and, and was a fantastic way to initiate treatment. Great. Right. So, what, what what changes did you see after doing that? Twenty minutes. Oh, man, you know what? You know what? Everything changed, right? Hip extension was stronger. Um, not uh, still with some weird compensatory stuff. Like he would use his, still use his hip flexion a little bit. Those didn't change, like I said. But full, basically full strength. Okay. Uh, a little bit of inhibition, but almost full. Hamstrings, great. Still with that compensation with the hip flexion by using prone. Uh, flip them over and ankle strength, any weakness that was there, the little bit with the left side was gone with no pain. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else major there. How about his knee function? Flexion. Knee flexion was better. Patellar mobility was 
about the same uh, overall, um, and any little bits of weakness in abduction and adduction will go. So explain that. How did his knee flexion improve if you did nothing around the knee? He's got all this garbage around the knee. You didn't even go near that. Well, you didn't even you didn't even have him on his back. He was on his stomach, knee, needles in the back and in the glutes. How does his knee flexion improve? Explain explain the connection there. It's, it's uh, there's a couple different levels, right? So vascular, we're going to improve the you know the perfusion, the function of the sympathetic system, right. perhaps that causes a, some sort of vasodilation or constriction that's going to alter the function of the tissues there. We stimulated the nerve roots of the lumbar plexus, which have innervation to the knee patellar region, right? Whether it's obturator or femoral, we're going to be impacting that significantly. Perhaps the reflex through the, the the sciatic as well. So we're Treating the knee at the same time. We're treating the pelofemoral compartment, we're treating the tibiofemoral compartment all at the same time, and therefore any of the soft tissues around it. So while we may have a more specific opportunity to treat those, we are still impacting them considerably. And, uh, and so that's, that's why I start in a case, especially one that's as complex as his, with something more global, and then I got more specific. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So where does it go from here? Well, so I, uh, I, I, I reassessed squat, which was considerably better. I reassessed his ability to do a single leg squat on the left. He was getting further, still some discomfort, but a lot further. Uh, and then I got him back on the table and I put a needle into the area of the femoral nerve and used the point plus. Simulated that for a while, got a nice contraction of the quads, you know, really, really strong, very comfortable contraction. Uh, for a couple, number of minutes, did a little bit of work on the patella, and that mobility improved further. His knee flexion was almost full by the end of that session, better than the contralateral side. And, uh, and then once again, some more improvements in the single leg squat. Then I watched him walk again. And uh, I won't show you the video this time, but much more fluid, better push-up. His arm movement was way better. It felt it looked way more natural. It wasn't, you know, he wasn't stuck in abduction by about 30 degrees. He was now arms at his sides, actually swinging on both sides. There was a bit more rotation through the thoracolumbar region. There were better push-offs. He was walking about twice as fast. And he, he had just been laying down on his stomach mm -hmm. and then had his quad zapped. And he got up and was walking twice as fast. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. I, so I, here's a question uh, for the listeners. You've already treated in the first part of that, that session his lumbar plexus L2 to L4, and um, those segments innervate that femoral nerve. So why do you also flip them over and treat the actual femoral nerve if you've already treated those segments? How do you, like, what in your assessment is telling you that you need to do that? Well, we know there's a huge amount of inhibition. We know that there's a huge amount of uh, adaptive demand that's happened over a long period of time that's basically gone unfulfilled. And so I know that while we can have a global effect, a specific effect is going to further enhance it. So we can have a certain effect going to the segment, but then we can magnify it by going locally as well. So we want to stimulate these axons in as many different ways as possible so that we can lead to a greater response of the nervous system. So a better connectivity with the rest of the system. And so we're going to amplify the effect every time we go locally as well as mm -hmm. more proximal. And what I might say is that when you, both of those treatments, whether it's the pointer plus the femoral nerve or a multi-segmental where you target the L2 to L4 um, posterior primary rami, both of those are a treatment of the segment. 
right? Because yeah. those signals are both going to the same segment. The difference in stimulating the femoral nerve is you get a local contraction of that quad, which activates all sorts of mechanoreceptors, proprioceptors yep. around the joint. Those messages are now going back to that segment, and he probably has, from the femoral nerve stimulation, just a better overall engagement of the tissues in that area, the quad, as opposed to if you just did the segment. You probably get some uptick with just a segment, but you don't get, I think, that proprioceptive kind of soft tissue upregulation like you do with the with the local. Certainly magnifies effect, and, yeah. and just having done that simulation, again, patellar mobility, was that was where the exactly. patellar mobility changed. Yeah. And then I did a little yeah. bit of work in the last few minutes, yeah. and it, it changed better than if I had done none of those treatments or just a multi-segment. I think you affected the tensegrity a lot more with the femoral nerve stimulation. Definitely. So, Definitely. Yeah. Obviously, a lot to think of here, but... So what's what's the outlook for this guy? What did you tell him? Because he probably asked, like, what, you know, am I going to be able to run my three marathons? Yeah, so I didn't say yes. What I said is we're going to work towards that, and we're going to put all the things in place to make sure that he's got the adaptive potential to work towards that area, uh, to work towards that goal. What I meant by that was we're going to help his ability to absorb reaction forces. We're going to start to eventually uh, load his tissues and see how he responds, and that's going to dictate what we need to do thereafter. I told him that we need to make sure that we take a stepwise approach and avoid kind of regressions and, and avoid more tumbling of that Jenga tower one more time. So I really made it clear to him that we're going to put everything in place to make sure that it can happen. I think it's realistic. Uh, I don't think that ultimately his patellar issues are going to be a limiting factor because that was still there when he was running a couple years ago. You know, <laughs> I have the, the MRI from five years ago. Didn't just show up marathons. Yeah. Uh, so it didn't just show up out of nowhere. Maybe it's progressed a little further, but I don't think it's suddenly become a limiting factor. Mm -hmm. The limiting factor is going to be, can we improve his adaptability at the thoracic spine? Can we improve his mobility at the uh, at the patella, which I, we already showed time that we can? Can we get his glutes engaged, and can we get him moving more efficiently? And if he can move more efficiently, then the adaptive demand drops because he's now asking his body to use a more efficient mm -hmm. pattern. You can use a more efficient pattern, then the resources he's already got, we can employ to slowly build up his tolerance and eventually work him towards that run. He doesn't want to do one until October, so that gives us almost a full year mm -hmm. to build up that adaptability, and I have confidence that he will, but I'm not quite going to say yes until I see a little bit more of his progress and understand his body a little bit more. So I'm going to pick up where I left off with that multi-segmental next time, and then I'm going to start on the patellar mobility, and I'm going to continue to work on, on femoral nerve stuff, and then eventually getting into uh, red cord, where we can start to repattern his movement, work on core engagement, and isolate his ability to engage glutes without extending through his lumbar spine. Yeah. Fantastic. Sounds yeah. good. Sounds good. So maybe we'll check in in you know, about a month. Yeah, that sounds see good. See where he's at, because it'd be nice to get some follow-up on, uh, on these cases. That's, that's one of the things that you... You never know how, how things are going to progress, and as you produce one change in him, you might notice a whole bunch of other things that change, which you got to work on. So let's check in in a month, and hopefully this is the first of just many other uh, cases that we do. It'd be nice to do one like one a month, and, and I think it's a great way to learn, and the yeah. discussion kind of just creates itself, right, with all the questions that come out of these cases. Yeah, I thought it was a great case that highlights all of those points that we regularly discuss. So ultimately, it's something we do regularly, but at the same time, we are hitting all of those points that we discuss in the podcast 
reinforcing them and putting them into kind of content.